Section six of Chapter twenty five of A History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter twenty five, Section six. The clerk then went on with the list the lord president and the lord privy seal who were well known to have stood up strongly for the privileges of the lords were reviled by some angry members but no motion was made against either and soon the tories became uneasy in their turn for the name of the duke of leeds was read he was one of themselves they were very unwilling to put a stigma on him yet how could they just after declaiming against the chancellor for accepting a very moderate and well-earned provision undertake the defence of a statesman who had out of grants pardons and bribes accumulated a princely fortune there was actually evidence on the table that his grace was receiving from the bounty of the crown more than thrice as much as had been bestowed on summers and nobody could doubt that his grace's secret gains had very far exceeded those of which there was evidence on the table it was accordingly moved that the house which had indeed been sitting massy hours should adjourn the motion was lost but neither party was disposed to move that the consideration of the list should be resumed it was however resolved without a division that an address should be presented to the king requesting that no person not a native of his dominions prince george excepted might be admitted to the privy council either of england or of ireland the evening was now far spent the candles had been some time lighted and the house rose so ended one of the most anxious turbulent and variously eventful days in the long parliamentary history of england what the morrow would have produced if time had been allowed for a renewal of hostilities can only be guessed the supplies had been voted the king was determined not to receive the address which requested him to disgrace his dearest and most trusty friends indeed he would have prevented the passing of that address by proroguing parliament on the preceding day had not the lords risen the moment after they had agreed to the resumption bill he had actually come from kensington to the treasury for that purpose and his robes and crown were in readiness he now took care to be at westminster in good time the commons had scarcely met when the knock of black rod was heard they repaired to the other house the bills were passed and bridgewater by the royal command prorogued the parliament for the first time since the revolution the session closed without a speech from the throne william was too angry to thank the commons and too prudent to reprimand them the health of james had been during some years declining and he had at length on good friday seventeen o one suffered a shock from which he had never recovered 
while he was listening in his chapel to the solemn service of the day he fell down in a fit and remained long insensible some people imagined that the words of the anthem which his choristers were chanting had produced in him emotions too violent to be borne by an enfeebled body and mind for that anthem was taken from the plaintive elegy in which a servant of the true god chastened by many sorrows and humiliations banished homesick and living on the bounty of strangers bewailed the fallen throne and the desolate temple of sion remember o lord what is come upon us consider and behold our reproach our inheritance is turned to strangers our houses to aliens the crown has fallen from our head wherefore does thou forget us forever the king's malady proved to be paralytic fagon the first physician of the french court and on medical questions the oracle of all europe prescribed the waters of bourbon lewis with all his usual generosity sent to saint-germain ten thousand crowns in gold for the charges of the journey and gave orders that every town along the road should receive his good brother with all the honours due to royalty james after passing some time at bourbon returned to the neighbourhood of paris with health so far re-established that he was able to take exercise on horseback but with judgment and memory evidently impaired on the thirteenth of september he had a second fit in his chapel and it soon became clear that this was a final stroke he rallied the last energies of his failing body and mind to testify his firm belief in the religion for which he had sacrificed so much he received the last sacraments with every mark of devotion exhorted his son to hold fast to the true faith in spite of all temptations and entreated middleton who almost alone among the courtiers assembled in the bedchamber professed himself a protestant to take refuge from doubt and error in the bosom of the one infallible church after the extreme unction had been administered james declared that he pardoned all his enemies and named particularly the prince of orange the princess of denmark and the emperor the emperor's name he repeated with peculiar emphasis take notice father he said to the confessor that i forgive the emperor with all my heart it may perhaps seem strange that he should have found this the hardest of all exercises of christian charity but it must be remembered that the emperor was the only roman catholic prince still living who had been accessory to the revolution and that james might not unnaturally consider roman catholics who had been accessory to the revolution as more inexcusably guilty than heretics who might have deluded themselves into the belief that in violating their duty to him they were discharging their duty to god while james was still able to understand what was said to him
and make intelligible answers, Lewis visited him twice. The English exiles observed that the most Christian king was to the last considerate and kind in the very slightest matters which concerned his unfortunate guest. He would not allow his coach to enter the court of Saint-Germain, lest the noise of the wheels should be heard in the sick-room. In both interviews he was gracious, friendly, and even tender. But he carefully abstained from saying anything about the future position of the family which was about to lose its head. Indeed, he could say nothing, for he had not yet made up his own mind. Soon, however, it became necessary for him to form some resolution. On the 16th, James sank into a stupor which indicated the near approach of death. While he lay in this helpless state, Madame de Maintenon visited his consort. To this visit many persons who were likely to be well informed attributed a long series of great events. We cannot wonder that a woman should have been moved to pity by the misery of a woman, that a devout Roman Catholic should have taken a deep interest in the fate of a family persecuted, as she conceived, solely for being Roman Catholics, or that the pride of the widow of Scarron should have been intensely gratified by the supplications of a daughter of Este and a queen of England. From mixed motives, probably, the wife of Lewis promised her more powerful protection to the wife of James. Madame de Maintenon was just leaving Saint-Germain when, on the brow of the hill which overlooks the valley of the Seine, she met her husband who had come to ask after his guest. It was probable at this moment that he was persuaded to form a resolution of which neither he nor she, by whom he was governed, foresaw the consequences. Before he announced that resolution, however, he observed all the decent forms of deliberation. A council was held that evening at Marley, and was attended by the princes of the blood, and by the ministers of state. The question was propounded whether, when God should take James the Second of England to himself, France should recognize the pretender as King James the Third. The ministers were, one and all, against the recognition. Indeed, it seems difficult to understand how any person who had any pretensions to the name of statesman should have been of a different opinion. Torcy took his stand on the grounds that to recognize the Prince of Wales would be to violate the Treaty of Rizik. This was indeed an impregnable position. By that treaty his Most Christian Majesty had bound himself to do nothing which could, directly or indirectly, disturb the existing order of things in England, and in what way, except by an actual invasion, could he do more to disturb the existing order of things in England than by solemnly declaring, in the face of the whole world, that he did not consider that order of things as legitimate, that he regarded the Bill of Rights and the Act of Settlement as nullities, 
and the king in possession as a usurper. The recognition would then be a breach of faith, and even if all considerations of morality were set aside, it was plain that it would at that moment be wise in the French government to avoid everything which could with plausibility be represented as a breach of faith. The crisis was a very peculiar one. The great diplomatic victory won by France in the preceding year had excited the fear and hatred of her neighbours. Nevertheless there was, as yet, no great coalition against her. The House of Austria, indeed, had appealed to arms. But with the House of Austria alone, the House of Bourbon could easily deal. Other powers were still looking in doubt to England for the signal. And England, though her aspect was sullen and menacing, still preserved neutrality. That neutrality would not have lasted so long if William could have relied on the support of his Parliament and of his people. In his Parliament there were agents of France who, though few, had obtained so much influence by clamouring against standing armies, profuse grants, and Dutch favourites, that they were often blindly followed by the majority, and his people, distracted by domestic factions, unaccustomed to busy themselves about continental politics, and remembering with bitterness the disasters and burdens of the last war, the carnage of London, the loss of the Smyrna fleet, the land tax at four shillings in the pound, hesitated about engaging in another contest, and would probably continue to hesitate while he continued to live. He could not live long. It had indeed often been prophesied that his death was at hand, and the prophets had hitherto been mistaken but there was now no possibility of mistake. His cough was more violent than ever, his legs were swollen, his eyes, once bright and clear as those of a falcon, had grown dim. He who, on the day of the Boyne, had been sixteen hours on the backs of different horses, could now with great difficulty creep into his stage-coach. The vigorous intellect and the intrepid spirit remained. But on the body fifty years had done the work of ninety. In a few months the vaults of Westminster would receive the emaciated and shattered frame, which was animated by the most far-sighted, the most daring, the most commanding of souls. In a few months the British throne would be filled by a woman whose understanding was well known to be feeble, and who was believed to lean towards the party which was averse from war. To get over those few months without an open and violent rupture should have been the first object of the French government. Every engagement should have been punctually fulfilled. Every occasion of quarrel should have been studiously avoided. Nothing should have been spared which could quiet the alarms and soothe the wounded pride of neighbouring nations. The House of Bourbon was so situated 
that one year of moderation might not improbably be rewarded by thirty years of undisputed ascendancy. Was it possible the politic and experienced Lewis would, at such a conjuncture, offer a new and most galling provocation, not only to William, whose animosity was already as great as it could be, but to the people whom William had hitherto been vainly endeavouring to inspire with animosity resembling his own. How often, since the revolution of 1688, had it seemed that the English were thoroughly weary of the new government? And how often had the detection of a Jacobite plot, or the approach of a French armament, changed the whole face of things? All at once the grumbling had ceased. The grumblers had crowded to sign loyal addresses to the usurper, had formed associations in support of his authority, had appeared in arms at the head of the militia, crying, God save King William. So it would be now. Most of those who had taken a pleasure in crossing him on the question of his Dutch guards, on the question of his Irish grants, would be moved to vehement resentment when they learned that Lewis had, in direct violation of a treaty, determined to force on England a king of his own religion, a king bred in his own dominions, a king who would be at Westminster what Philip was at Madrid, a great feudatory of France. These arguments were concisely but clearly and strongly urged by Torcy in a paper which is still extant, and which it is difficult to believe that his master can have read without great misgivings. On one side were the faith of treaties, the peace of Europe, the welfare of France, nay, the selfish interests of the House of Bourbon. On the other side were the influence of an artful woman and the promptings of vanity, which, we must in candour acknowledge, was ennobled by a mixture of compassion and chivalrous generosity. The king determined to act in direct opposition to the advice of all his ablest servants, and the princes of the blood applauded his decision, as they would have applauded any decision which he had announced, Nowhere was he regarded with a more timorous, a more slavish respect than in his own family. On the following day he went again to Saint-Germain, and attended by a splendid retinue, entered James's bedchamber. The dying man scarcely opened his heavy eyes, and then closed them again. "'I have something,' said Lewis of great moment to communicate to your majesty. The courtiers who filled the room took this as a signal to retire, and were crowding towards the door, when they were stopped by that commanding voice. Let nobody withdraw. I come to tell your majesty that, whenever it shall please God to take you from us, I will be to your son what I have been to you, and will acknowledge him as King of England, Scotland, and Ireland. The English exiles who were standing 
round the couch, fell to their knees. Some burst into tears. Some poured forth praises and blessings with clamour, such as was scarcely becoming in such a place and at such a time. Some indistinct murmurs which James uttered, and which were drowned by the noisy gratitude of his attendants, were interpreted to mean thanks. But from the most trustworthy accounts, it appears that he was insensible to all that was passing around him. As soon as Lewis was again at Marley, he repeated to the court assembled there the announcement which he had made at Saint-Germain. The whole circle broke forth into exclamations of delight and admiration. What piety! What humanity! What magnanimity! Nor was this enthusiasm altogether feigned, for in the estimation of the greater part of that brilliant crowd, nations were nothing and princes everything. What could be more generous, more amiable, than to protect an innocent boy who was kept out of his rightful inheritance by an ambitious kinsman? The fine gentlemen and fine ladies who talked thus forgot that, besides the innocent boy and that ambitious kinsman, five millions and a half of Englishmen were concerned, who were little disposed to consider themselves as the absolute property of any master, and who were still less disposed to accept a master chosen for them by the French king. James lingered three days longer. He was occasionally sensible during a few minutes, and during one of these lucid intervals faintly expressed his gratitude to Lewis. On the sixteenth he died. His queen retired that evening to the nunnery of Chalotte, where she could weep and pray undisturbed. She left Saint-Germain in joyous agitation. A herald made his appearance before the palace gate, and with sound of trumpet proclaimed in Latin, French, and English, King James the Third of England and Eighth of Scotland. The streets, in consequence doubtless of orders from the government, were illuminated, and the townsmen with loud shouts wished a long reign to their illustrious neighbour. The poor lad received from his ministers, and delivered back to them the seals of their offices, and held out his hand to be kissed. One of the first acts of his mock reign was to bestow some mock peerages in conformity with directions which he found in his father's will. Middleton, who had as yet no English title, was created Earl of Monmouth. Perth, who had stood high in the favour of his late master, both as an apostate from the Protestant religion and as the author of the last improvements on the thumbscrew, took the title of Duke. End of section 6